Well, good morning. You may be seated. I'm not going to make you stand up for the whole thing. Thank you very much, worship team, for leading us in those beautiful songs um, and that wonderful psalm you read, Brother Glenn. Uh, to be quite honest, I couldn't have planned this more perfectly. Um, we're going to actually be uh, starting a new series today. You can clap. It's okay. We're starting a new series. We're going to be in First Samuel. Ooh, yeah, I heard some of that. We're going to be in First Samuel, and I believe we're going to be going through both of the books of Samuel. Is that correct, brother? Yeah. Yeah, so buckle up, ladies and gentlemen, because we're in for a ride. So we're going to be uh, starting in First Samuel. Um, and I just want to say before we get started, um, I love y'all. I love getting to to be here with uh, with this great group of people that God has brought together. I mean, it's such a blessing to get to come together with brothers and sisters who, who love the Lord and whom God has drawn together for His glory and for His purposes, um, and to not be to not be brought together by some secular commonality or or whatever it is that the world says friendships are based off of, but to, to have relationships founded upon Christ himself Amen. and the teachings of Scripture and that God has brought us together so that we can um, not just grow closer to one another, but that we can push one another closer to God and closer to holiness. Um, that's a beautiful thing. Um, so I don't ever want us to take for granted the beauty of what we've been given in this fellowship and this gathering together of the saints. Um, it's a wonderful gift that God has blessed his people with, and we should truly treat it as such. So that's, <clears throat> that was just a little something from the heart. It's, uh, I'm not going to charge you any extra. It's fine. You can keep that. Um, so we're going to be starting in 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 1. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And if you have found it and you are able, I ask that you would please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Again, that is 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. And the word of God says, Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, 
she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we just want to thank you for this beautiful time that you have given us. Lord, to gather together, Lord, to open your word. Lord, and to read it. Lord, and not just to read it, but to study it. God, and to let your very words breathe life back into us. And Lord, I pray we would not take this time for granted, but that instead you, the King of glory, the Lord of hosts, the High King of heaven, would be glorified today. God, and that you would speak to your people by your word and by your spirit. God, so that we may draw near to you and become more like Christ than we've ever been. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so... First things first, let's have a little background. What's going on here? Well, we're actually, um, if you're familiar with uh, much of the Old Testament, we're actually in a time in Israel's history called the time of the judges. So the time of the judges was a time when God would essentially raise up um, prophets and um, regional rulers um, in order to lead his people for a time. Um, they weren't kings. So that's, that's why they're not called kings. They're called judges. Um, they weren't kings per se. They weren't um, princes or any, or any kind of um, crowned nobility. But they were ordained by God to lead his people during, during certain turbulent times in the nation's history. And if you recall, there's, there's a long list of judges that's available in the book of Judges. Um, and you have characters like uh, Samson, Gideon. Um, you even have uh, Deborah. You've got a, uh, got a bunch of people uh, throughout the history. Um, I believe, um, in fact, uh, Jeff preached a sermon on, on a judge uh, a couple months ago on Ehud, the left-handed man. <laughs> and, and if you haven't heard that, I recommend you get on our sermon audio and go listen to it because it's a really good sermon. Um, but there's a long list of these judges, of these regional rulers that God had raised up. And we're actually, we're actually coming to the end of this time of the judges when we come to 1 Samuel. Um, because Samuel himself um, actually is kind of the transition period. And, and one person, we have a guy who goes from acting as a judge in Israel to prophet and priest. And so we see this uh, in one person, this transition of Israel from, from basically essentially um, a, a, a collection of tribes um, to in Samuel's lifetime and in his person to one united kingdom under the monarchy. So that's the that's the time period we're in, um, the end of the judges um, and the very, very, very beginning of Israel's monarchy. Um, these, the first and second Samuel were actually originally one book. Um, they were just, it was kind of just cut into two because it was 
really long and hard to fit on one roll of parchment. So they kind of cut it in two, fit what they could on one, and then the um, the other parchment was second Samuel. Um, but it's really one book, and this this whole book covers about 1100 BC to about 970 BC. Um, so we've got about 100, uh, 130-ish years um, in the in the book of Samuel, um, starting with um, really just before Samuel himself arrives on the scene, and all the way through to um, David and the end of his reign. And um, during this time, we see a lot. We, we see a lot of what God is doing, not just in Israel, but through Israel, out to the nations, the surrounding area, and the influence um, that Israel had in the in their neck of the woods. So that's really what we're dealing with here. Um, it's called Samuel because Samuel's the first main character who's introduced, um, and we. Uh, there's some question as to who actually wrote Samuel. Uh, it was most likely, um, it wasn't all written by Samuel. Samuel dies in chapter 25. Um, hard to write after you're dead. But, uh, so we've got Samuel until at least chapter 25. Um, and then after him, uh, probably the writings of Nathan and another prophet named Gad um, that were all kind of collated together to form the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. Um, and with that in mind, so you got a little history, you got a little context, you got a little literary knowledge going on now. So let's dive into 1 Samuel. And immediately we're introduced to, uh, to a man named Elkanah. Uh, now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. The son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. Now, this long pedigree that we see here of this man, Elkanah, um, seems to indicate he was a man of some stature. Um, people didn't really bother learning the pedigrees of people who didn't matter. Um, so when, uh, when a man's lineage goes back three or four generations, he probably is of, uh, has some wealth. He probably is of some standing in the, in the society. And it actually calls him um, uh, 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 not an Ephraimite. Your translation may say an Ephrathite. Those are both fine. Um, really what they're saying is um, they're not talking about his lineage because his lineage is actually of Levite heritage. Um, what they're talking about is his place of residence. He lived in the land of Ephraim. Why? Because if you remember, the Levites weren't given a plot of land. The Levites instead lived among the other tribes. So the so as a Levite, it was well known by this pedigree. Obviously, this man's a Levite. The, the original audience would have been like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's a Levite. Um, but he lived in the land of Ephraim. So it refers to him as an Ephraimite or an Ephrathite or whatever your translation says. And that's okay. That is a-okay. And the city he's from, Ramathaim Zophim, your translation might just say Ramath, or might just say Ramathaim. That is a-okay. We're all talking about the same place. This is a little city that as best as we know, remember, archaeology is kind of an art and a science. Tough to say exactly where this particular city was, um, but we think probably somewhere within about a five-mile radius of Jerusalem. 
somewhere in that neck of the woods. Um, but we're introduced to this man, Elkanah. And this Elkanah, this man of some, some standing in society, um, this uh, Levite, so he's of the priestly lineage, living among the people of Ephraim. And what about him? Well, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And if you, if you recall, I'm sure you know, um, polygamy wasn't exactly great. It wasn't um, the preferred choice, um, but it was... Um, it was essentially permitted and regulated um, in this area, uh, even among God's people. Um, particularly when, in certain instances, because remember we're talking about a people, we're talking about a time when basically the draft was automatic. So if you were a young man and you were able to fight, you fought. Um, and chances, a pretty good chance you weren't coming home. So um, polygamy was, uh, or multiple Wives was one of those uh, was just one of the routes of trying to ensure your family heritage. Um, not not saying this is God's design. Just saying this is how people viewed it, and this is what they did in order to uh, keep their lineage going. Um, but we see here that Elkanah had two wives, and it mentions Hannah first, and then Penina second. What that probably means is that Hannah was actually his first wife, and because she couldn't have kids. He married another woman. Um, and in fact, there's a good chance that this other woman that he married may have actually been a servant or handmaiden of Hannah herself. Uh, and we're hearing echoes of the story of Sarah and Hagar. Exactly. We're hearing echoes of that now. I mean, and, and this is really what it is. Remember this whole idea of, um, this whole idea of God Opening a closed wound in a marriage is the little miracle that points to the big miracle of his son coming from a virgin. So this, this whole idea, we're seeing right out of the, the gate, we're getting Christological symbols here. We're getting, we're getting shadows and pointers to Christ, and we're seeing this idea that, that God is doing something. God is, God's fulfilling something. He's he's. He is not just making a promise, he's meeting a promise. And he is, um, in the life of this, of this man, Elkanah, and his two wives, we see one with children and one without children. And we see that this great man, this, this man of some pedigree, this man of some, some standing, he would go up from his city, his city being the, the really long one that starts with R, um, he would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now, maybe that, maybe our ears kind of, kind of come up a little bit. That's like, Shiloh? Why is he going to Shiloh? Remember, we're coming out of the time of the judges, and right before the time of the judges was the time of Joshua, Moses' successor. And in the time of Joshua, the tent, the tabernacle came to rest in Shiloh. So that's that's actually Shiloh is where is where the tabernacle, the tent, 
um, that served as God's dwelling. That's where it resided from the time of Joshua until essentially David moves into Jerusalem. So what we have here is this man, this pious man, this religious man, he's going up to the tent of meeting yearly to worship God. And earlier in the Bible, we actually see where the Bible um, prescribes three yearly feasts um, that uh, if you live, if you don't live in the city, you must make a pilgrimage to the city. Um, and he could have been going to observe one of those, um, or he could have been uh, could have been some kind of family gathering, essentially, um, where the whole family got together. Um, but we see this man yearly going from Ramathaim to or Rama, as it's referred to later, to Shiloh to sacrifice to the Lord. And from Rama to, to Shiloh was about 15 to 20 miles. Um, and when you're walking, that's a long way. And when you do it yearly, it's, it's still a long way. But he's going up there. He's making this 20-mile journey yearly to worship and to serve and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. And that's an interesting phrase, the Lord of hosts. Your Bible probably has it, Lord in all caps, and then of hosts tacked onto it. And this, this title, this Lord of hosts, meaning essentially the God or it, it could mean the, the almighty God, the God of everything, or it could mean um, the God of the God of armies, the God of Israel's armies, the God of the armies of the world, or the God of the angelic armies. And what we, ha- what we have here, this is the first time this title is used for God in the entire Bible. This is the first time this, this Sabaoleth, this, this Hebrew word meaning hosts or uh, armies or multitudes, it's the first time this word is used, is tacked onto this covenant name of God, this Yahweh. It's the first time this is done in the whole Bible. So here we have Yahweh Sabaoth, the God, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. And we see here, this actually sets up so much of the book to follow because we're going to see essentially a people at war not just at war with surrounding nations yes quite obviously but a nation really at war with itself and this warring amongst themselves is actually illustrated and personified in the family of this man And so he goes up here to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And then we have kind of an aside here. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests up to the Lord there. Now, at this time, that's about all we know about Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We're going to find out later, they are not great guys. Um, And to be quite honest, their dad, Eli, who was one of Israel's judges, um... He's not very good at keeping his sons reined in either. 
Um, so what we're gonna what we're gonna see later on, where the actual character of these of these men, they're simply mentioned here. So Eli, Hophni, or the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were priests to the Lord here uh, at Shiloh, and it was in Shiloh where essentially um, they were doing all of the things that is they're later going to end up answering for. Um, if you haven't read it, I don't want to spoil the surprise. Um, but it's not surprising what happens to them. Um, so, that is what happens to, or that is um, Elkanah going up to Shiloh. Um, and then it talks about what when he would go there, yearly to sacrifice, what he would do. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. That makes sense. Because we're talking about here most likely a peace offering. And the peace offering was essentially um, the only offering where you you didn't burn up the whole thing and it wasn't what wasn't burned up was eaten by the priest, but what wasn't burned up was eat, was given to the family, the people giving the sacrifice and they ate. So it's probably a peace offering. And he would give obviously to his wife and her children the portions reserved for them, set aside for them. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So we see here the love of a man for his wife who is grieving. We see here the love of a man for his wife who, I mean, in, in this time and in this age, was not, according to worldly standards, according to outside eyes, was not meeting her wifely duty in providing him with children, specifically sons. And Elkanah was actually similar to Joseph in the New Testament. He was well within his rights to actually divorce a woman who wasn't giving him children. But like Joseph, instead of instead of standing on his rights and doing what he could have done, what he was legally okay to do, he instead loved her. And he lavished love upon her. And he gave to her not just the portion due her, but a double portion. Your translation may even say a worthy portion. That's a good translation. I like that. Why? Because it says, or it symbolizes, the love that Elkanah had for his wife, despite the fact that she wasn't meeting certain expectations. And what we see here, and it's also providential probably that we're going through Hosea, and what we see here is really kind of a similar situation to Jose and his wife. We see, obviously, she's not, as the Bible refers to it, as playing the harlot, but she's not meeting certain wifely expectations. But what does Jose do instead of turning his back on her and saying, fine, be gone with you, get lost? He brings her back, and he loves her. And we see Elkanah doing the same thing. And what we are seeing here is just like in Hosea, and just like with Elkanah, we see God 
during this time. And remember, during the time of the judges, it's like a roller coaster, man. You go through that book, it's like it's like the people are, oh, God help us, saved. And then everyone did what was right in their own eyes, down. It's a roller coaster of that over and over again. And what we see here in Elkanah, we see God saying, though you are not fruitful, though you are not fulfilling your duty, I love you. And I lavish upon you. He's doing that. He's saying that to the people of Israel at that time. And my friends, he's saying that to the church today. He's saying that that just because you stumble and fall, just because you don't uphold the law perfectly, just because you got out of bed and the prayer you gave was half-hearted if you gave one at all, He doesn't stop loving you. He doesn't doesn't turn his back on you and say, do right and then we'll talk. Fix it and then we'll see where we go from there. He doesn't do that. What does he do instead? He lavishes his love upon his people. Yes, God is a vengeful God, but not to those for whom Christ died. That debt has been paid. The cup of that wrath has been drunk. It doesn't belong to you anymore. And now he he lavishes his love upon his people freely and openly. And sometimes it looks it looks weird. Sometimes we see it and it doesn't we don't interpret it as love. It doesn't look like love. Because it doesn't fit our idea of what love looks like. But he continues to lavish his love upon us because he knows that without it, we have no hope. And he lavishes that love upon us because in Christ, all he can do is love us. And sometimes that love, sometimes that love comes with discipline. Sometimes that love comes with lessons that are learned the hard way. Sometimes that love comes with times and situations and living out the consequences of our own stupid decisions, our own sinful mistakes. Sometimes that love comes with a reality check. But just like Elkanah, just like Hosea, he still lavishes his love. Because the Lord only chastises those who he loves. If you don't get disciplined, God doesn't love you. And so so instead of turning away from the discipline, that reality, that fact, that truth, that light, like Spurgeon says, I've learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. So Elkanah is lavishing his love upon his wife despite the fact that the Lord closed her womb. And what God is saying here, what the Bible is saying here, what Samuel is saying here is that ultimately her situation was in God's control. Was there, a, was there possibly a medical fact 
for the reason she couldn't have kids? Possibly. Does that make God any less in control of the situation? No. So God, ultimately in control, had closed Hannah's womb. And her rival, however, talking about Penina, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. In her own family, instead of receiving love and instead of receiving consolation and comfort and encouragement, she was receiving derision and mocking and ridicule and scorn. In the interest of full transparency here, my wife and I are in a similar situation. I don't have two wives, and one's not making fun of the other. But we've been praying for kids for a very long time. We've been praying for kids since the day we got married. And, it, and God has, in his wisdom and in his grace, kept us from having children. And let me tell you, I've heard things from those in the household of faith regarding the situation that makes me think I understand the kinds of things that Panina was saying to Hannah. Things like, you don't believe hard enough. You need to have more faith. Well, there must be some secret sin in your life. There must be, you must be doing something wrong. I'm not saying perfect. I'm not saying either one of us is perfect. But I'm not saying that there isn't possibly some connection between sin and the situation. I mean, the, the situation is ultimately the result of sin, whether it's our sin, sin against us, or just the general presence of sin in the world. But these are the kinds of things people in the household of faith with possibly even the best intentions will say. And instead of comfort and encouragement, instead of being embraced and consoled and loved, you're made to feel small. You're made to feel at fault. Worthless. That you're being punished by God because you're wrong. This is what the needs do to him. Instead of seeing a hurting sister and loving her, she instead sees an easy target and decides to kick her when she's down. My friends, we in the household of faith have been saved from that. You have not been saved to ridicule your brothers and sisters and to hurt them and to pour salt in their wounds. We've been saved from that life. We've been saved knowing that just because God blesses somebody else or just because God blesses me, doesn't mean I can't be there for somebody whom God in his infinite wisdom has seen not to bestow that blessing upon.
So her rival would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Your translation might say, mock her thunderously. Your translation might say, uh, provoke her bitterly to humiliate her. This one Hebrew word really encapsulates all of that. The idea here is that the mocking and the provoking was so harsh and it was so loud and it was so constant and in her face that Hannah couldn't get away. To the point of irritation and humiliation. And as we see later, later weeping and refusing to eat. It happened year after year. As often as she, Hannah, went up to the house of the Lord, she, Penina, would provoke her. So that Hannah wept and would not eat. So at this, at this feast, at this yearly feast, which is a celebration, a time of, a time of coming together and eating and doing so to the glory of God, this woman was so provoked by someone who, by her actions, is not described as family, but instead as a rival. So provoked that she, all she could do was cry and couldn't even bring herself to eat and to join in on the festivities. There is a reason why I didn't read much past that. There's a reason why I didn't keep going to the happy news. Which is coming, I promise you. The good news is coming. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. The sun is going to rise on Hannah. And she's going to be blessed. But there's a reason I stopped. I mean, and I even debated going into verse 8. And I think I'm actually going to stop at verse 7. And the reason for that being is that sometimes the darkness lasts all night before you get to the morning. Sometimes it's, it's not over just like that. Sometimes it, it doesn't end when we think it should end. Sometimes it, it keeps going and it keeps going past the point where we feel like we're going to break. It keeps going past the point to where not only have we come to the end of our rope, but we're looking at the rope so far above us and it looks so far out of reach that we have no hope or prayer of ever reaching it. Sometimes the darkness lasts so long that it seems like maybe there is no light at the end of the tunnel. That's why we stopped there today. Because for the next week between this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to think about situation this woman is in. We're going to think about not just simply as seven verses before the good news comes that we can read in 10 seconds, 15, 20 seconds. We're instead going to 
going to focus on the fact that this wasn't this wasn't seven verses to this woman. This was her life, and it was her life for years. And maybe you're going through something. Maybe God has you in a situation where life feels like it is all darkness all the time. And maybe you've been in that situation for so long that you're having trouble seeing the light. You're having trouble. You're having trouble taking your focus off of the situation and putting it back on Christ. And when we think about it like this, maybe we empathize a little bit with Peter when he's walking out onto the waves. And as long as his eyes are on Christ, he's fine, but all of a sudden, Sometimes the wind picks up. Sometimes the waves get bigger. Sometimes the rain comes down harder. And it's harder to keep that focus on Christ. But the light is coming. But until the light comes, we don't know when, we don't know where, and we don't know how it will eventually shine upon us. Until God seems to grant us that which we long for so deeply. And in the process, perhaps God is teaching us you are relying far too much on the gift. You need to look at me. You need to be reminded of me. You need to see me and not the gift. The gift is wonderful. It's beautiful. The gift can be a good thing. The gift often is a good and great and wonderful thing. But when the gift becomes our focus, when it becomes our focal point, when it becomes the center of our identity, we've taken the gift and we've twisted it and fashioned into it an idol. And we've raised up the gift above the giver and we've turned something good, something for our good and for God's glory into something for ourselves and by which we define ourselves. Maybe that's what God was teaching Hannah. Maybe that's what God is teaching you as you go through whatever valley you're in at the moment whatever valley you may just be coming out of by the grace of God or and also by the grace of God whatever valley you might be about to walk into I just encourage you I implore you on those days when the darkness feels crushing I encourage you to remember and to understand that in those moments, that's not when God is the furthest from you. That's when he's the closest and he's teaching you the most precious truths about himself that you would never learn otherwise. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, God, we come before you. God, to give you all the glory we can muster. And God, the glory that we can't muster. God, we pray that the Spirit would give that over. And would give that to you and would take it for you. And would lift that up on our behalf. Because it belongs to you, Lord. Lord, I don't know. I don't know what darkness is surrounding my brothers and sisters. I don't know what night they are in, they are going into, or they are coming out of. But God, I pray that your spirit would lead them in all truth. That your spirit would guide them and bring them back to Jesus Christ and would when at all possible remind them that the darkness doesn't mean your absence. It simply means you're teaching us in a different way. And God, I pray that through this darkness, whatever it may be, that the faith of my brothers and sisters would only increase. That the holiness of my brothers and sisters would only grow greater. And that they would each and every one be made more like Jesus than they've ever been before. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.